protests surge in Israel as people rally in the streets against the government's plan to weaken their Supreme Court. We're fighting for the country. It's war. It's the worst war ever. The country and for the future of my grandchildren. For Saturday, March 18th, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ping Huang. This hour, we'll make sense of the fallout after two U.S.-based banks collapsed. If you were worried about a recession two weeks ago, you're probably more worried now. And the new season of Ted Lasso is here, with Jason Sudeikis as a super optimistic coach of an English soccer team. Well, I'm so dumb that the first time I heard y'all talking about Yorkshire pudding, I thought it was a fancy word y'all had for dog poop. Does the new season live up to its hype? And the latest on college basketball's March Madness. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In a social media post, former President Donald Trump says he's being arrested Tuesday in Manhattan, and he's calling on his supporters to protest. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more. In his post, Trump said, referring to himself, quote, the leading Republican candidate and former president of the United States will be arrested on Tuesday of next week. Trump did not provide further information on a potential indictment, though a Trump spokesperson said after his post that he's received no notification. The Manhattan DA has been investigating Trump for his role in hush money payments to adult film actor Stormy Daniels, who said she had an extramarital affair with Trump. Trump blasted the Manhattan DA and called on his own supporters to protest, much as he did before the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The DA isn't commenting or confirming Trump's post, and the timing of a potential indictment remains unclear. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Russian President Vladimir Putin paid a surprise visit to Crimea to mark the ninth anniversary of Russia's illegal annexation of the peninsula from Ukraine. As NPR's Charles Maines reports, the trip came just one day after the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for Putin's arrest on war crime charges. Russia has dismissed the ICC charges that Putin and a member of his cabinet oversaw the abduction and deportation of Ukrainian children into Russian families as irrelevant. Russia, Kremlin officials note is not a signatory of the International Court and therefore doesn't recognize its jurisdiction. Yet Putin pointedly visited a children's school during his trip to Crimea, the territory whose illegal annexation by Russia in 2014 prefigured the wider war unfolding in Ukraine today. In meetings with officials from the Moscow-installed government, Putin insisted security over the peninsula remained a Kremlin priority. That assertion came as Russia unleashed a new round of drone attacks on several regions of Ukraine, including the capital Kiev. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Wall Street is still on edge a week after two of the largest bank failures in U.S. history and emergency action from both the government and the big banks to shore up the banking system. NPR's David Gura reports. It was a very volatile week of trading, and shares of regional banks sank as customers moved their money to larger lenders, and investors feared more banks could fail. Over the course of the week, California-based First Republic Bank's stock price fell by more than 30 percent. And on Friday, Moody's downgraded its credit rating, citing significant challenges the lender faces. President Biden assured Americans the banking system is safe, and 11 big banks deposited $30 billion at First Republic to prop it up and to show their resolve. But that only provided limited relief ahead of a critical Federal Reserve meeting next week. David Gura. NPR News, New York. This is investors worry the problems that led to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank could be more pervasive. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. 
Anyone planning to go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade in South Boston tomorrow is being warned, don't drive. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports. Parking restrictions in South Boston start going into effect late tonight. The city's Department of Transportation warns that ticketing and towing on restricted streets will begin as early as 5 a.m. Sunday. The parade kicks off at 1 p.m. The 3.5-mile route will be closed to traffic until at least 4 p.m. Due to the closures, city officials are encouraging spectators to use the MBTA or blue bikes. A full list of parade-related street closures can be found online at WBUR.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum announced it would not open today. Thirty-three years ago today, a half million dollars worth of art was stolen from the museum. The Gardner issued a statement saying it was informed that climate activists were planning a protest inside the museum today. Officials were concerned it could potentially put the community and artwork at risk. The museum reopens tomorrow. Local hunger nonprofit Project Bread is praising Governor Maura Healy's effort to extend a pandemic-era program that provides free school meals for all students, regardless of income. Project Bread's Jennifer Lemmerman says the free meals are essential for students who depend on the food. It really demonstrates the stigma that those kids feel. But when we make school meals available to all children and we make those kids and their economic status essentially invisible in the cafeteria, then they eat. In a supplemental budget request, Governor Healy is asking state lawmakers to approve $171 million for the state-funded school meals program. The Prudential Center will be lit up gold tonight. The building's owner, Boston Properties, says it will represent the women's pro hockey team, Boston Pride. The Pride is hosting Game 2 of the semifinals against the Minnesota Whitecaps at 6 tonight. Look at our forecast. Partly cloudy tonight, alone in the upper 20s. For tomorrow, mostly sunny, upper 30s, and sunshine on Monday, near 50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. Israel's government is moving quickly to pass laws that would change the balance of power in the country and weaken the powers of the courts. Street protests in Israel are growing as leaders warn that Israel's democracy is under threat. Israel's president is even warning of a possible civil war. We're going to get the latest from NPR's Daniel Estrin. He joins us now from a protest in Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Ping. So, Daniel, give us a quick overview. How did this crisis begin? Right at the start of the year, the government announced its plan to give itself sweeping powers to handpick all of the country's judges to pass laws that the Supreme Court cannot overturn. They want to pass laws that prioritize religion and nationalism. And these are laws that the court would likely say infringe on basic rights. And so that's why the government wants to to limit the courts. And so protesters have been in the streets once or twice a week now in massive numbers. This is the 11th week in a row. Wow, the 11th week. I mean, how have the protests grown? What do they look like now? I'm here in in downtown Tel Aviv. I'm just looking at the sea, a packed sea of people carrying Israeli flags and carrying handmade signs. It's people of all ages. You know, the protests have intensified in ways that Israel has never seen. We are looking at hundreds of thousands of Israelis. These protesters are now spread throughout the country. It's really this 
liberal middle class revolts. You see kinds of people who don't usually rebel. I, I met a nearly 80 year old woman with her daughters who were in the crowds in the middle of the street blocking traffic. Take a listen. This is Michal Lichtman and her mom Talma Barmeir. We're fighting for the country. It's, it's war. It's the worst war ever. The country and for the future of our, my grandchildren and their children. Because the country is changing. You know, people here say they fear that their way of life is in danger. There are people who are protesting, thinking that women's rights will be limited under this new government. You see women marching in red robes and white bonnets, like in The Handmaid's Tale, and even author Margaret Atwood has tweeted images of that. Wow, so this is a huge um, protest, you know, counter-movement. I mean, where do you see this all heading from where you are? You know, what is happening right now is that Israel's president, a largely ceremonial figure, presented a compromise. He presented a watered-down version of the legislation, but the government immediately rejected it. And so what we expect the government to do is to try to pass its legislation within the next couple weeks. Uh, the Supreme Court then will likely overturn that legislation and say, no, you can't limit the judiciary, you can't limit us. And then we have a potential constitutional crisis here, uh, where you have two branches of government that don't agree on what the law is. Here's how those protesters you hear at the, at the top, here's how they see it. It's going to be extreme very soon. It's getting very close to the tilting point. I guess the Supreme Court will say one thing and the government will say another thing. Someone needs to rule the country, <laughs> to lead then the country. It will be a problem because the army and the police they will have to decide to whom they are listening, obeying. That's a problem. And in Oping, there are worries that this could devolve into violence. It's a very unsettling time here. So, do you know, the, the Israel's president's warning of um, a possible civil war, do you think that that is, you know, realistic? Is it an overblown assessment? Like, what is the possibility of that happening at this moment? You know, in the meantime, the protests have been mostly peaceful. Uh, and the police have mostly been hands off. But this is a very dizzying time and protesters I meet in the streets are worried that uh, that this could escalate into some violence. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin. He joined us from a protest in Tel Aviv. Daniel Estrin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been quite a week in banking news, and if you've had a hard time following, you're not alone. So, so far, here's what's happened. Over the last week, two banks failed. There was Silicon Valley Bank, based in Santa Clara, California, and Signature Bank, based in New York. So the U.S. seized those banks, and the Biden administration is guaranteeing all deposits from both banks without using tax dollars in the process. Still, the news is causing confidence in other financial institutions to fail. One of those was First Republic Bank, based in San Francisco, where fears of a bank run caused their global rating to get downgraded. That's led a group of its competitors to pledge $30 billion to keep the bank afloat and stop another failing. These cascading events happened so quickly, and we wanted to take a step back and talk about what's happened and why, and what happens next. So we've called David Wessel. He's the director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution. Welcome, David. Thank you. So, David, in short, what has happened here? I mean, what was it that drove Silicon Valley and Signature Banks to fail, and why is First Republic Bank in trouble right now? I think one of the basic causes here is that interest rates went up very, very fast. The Federal Reserve was a bit behind the curve in fighting inflation. It raised rates more than four percentage points in just a matter of months. 
And as one of the economists on Wall Street says, when the Fed taps on the brakes, somebody goes through the windshield, but you never know who it is. These banks made a big mistake. They took deposits, which could leave at any time, and they put much of that money into long-term government bonds. The value of those bonds fell when interest rates rose. When the deposits left, they had to sell those bonds, and they sold them at a loss. And this is a classic bank panic where it happens at one bank, and everybody says, oh my gosh, if it could happen to that bank, it could happen to my bank, so I'm going to take my money out and put it somewhere safer. And that's basically what's happened here. And from your perspective, I mean, was it an obvious mistake or was that kind of just how business as usual goes? I think it was a pretty bad mistake and they should have known better. There's reports that the Federal Reserve's supervisors had warned Silicon Valley Bank that you need to be more careful about your interest rate risk. Banks have somebody called a chief credit officer. Silicon Valley Bank's left and they didn't replace her for nine months. So there are lots of red flags here. Can you explain a little bit more about why the failure of these two banks has led to such turmoil in the financial world, despite them not really being very major banks? You have to think of this as more psychological than financial. Let's say you have money in a bank, and let's say you have a lot of money in the bank, more than the usual $250,000 ceiling on deposit insurance. And you read in the paper that a couple of banks failed, and you discover that you have money at First Republic Bank, which had made some of the same mistakes. So you take your money out. And you tell your golfing buddy that you're taking your money out, and she says, hmm, if you're doing it, I should do it. So money is flowing out of banks that look a little vulnerable because people are afraid they're going to lose their money. But if people have less than that amount of money in a bank, it's, it's always been insured by the FDIC if it is a bank that's insured by the FDIC. Absolutely. There is no reason for anybody who has less than $250,000 in the bank to do anything but go on along their weekend activities. Ever since the Great Depression, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has protected small depositors, and there's absolutely no risk to people who have less than that money in the bank. What kind of impact is this having on the stock market at large? Like, How is this affecting everyone else who doesn't bank with these specific institutions? Well, I think people are worried that A, this isn't over yet, that there are more shoes to fall, and B, this will inevitably hurt the economy. Every bank in America is just a little more cautious today than they were two weeks ago. And when all the banks get cautious, that means they make fewer loans and fewer people can borrow, and that will hurt people who want to buy a house or start a business or something. So if you were worried about a recession two weeks ago, you're probably more worried now because what's called a credit crunch when banks get reluctant to lend can very much lead to a recession. And people watching this might feel some throwback vibes to the 2008 bank failures. Do you think that this situation might continue to spiral? Should people be worried about a continued domino effect? I don't think this is over yet, but from what I see, it's not as bad as 2008. What happened back then was a whole lot of banks had made a lot of bad loans, mostly in housing. And so every big bank was in trouble. This is much different. We have some medium-sized banks that are definitely in trouble. There's definitely going to be some more caution from the banks, but the very biggest banks are still very strong. Do you think that this current situation might cause any long-term permanent changes in banking regulations? I know that that's kind of been a subject of debate about whether that was a problem here at hand or not. 
There's a big debate about whether it was the rules, the regulations that were responsible for this, or whether it was the quality of supervision, which is the practice of administering the rules and making sure that the banks are behaving. In my view, it was more about supervision than regulation, but I have no doubt there will be some new regulations as a result of this, and there will be more scrutiny on banks the size of Silicon Valley Bank, because they had been exempted from some rules on the theory that, well, no bank the size of Silicon Valley could topple the financial system. Well, now we know that's not true. And looking ahead, what are you going to be paying attention to in the next week or several weeks ahead? So there are a couple things. One big one is what does the Federal Reserve do this coming week? Do they go ahead with plans to raise interest rates to stop inflation, which they think is still running too high? Or do they take a break because they think that the financial system is so fragile they don't want to upset it? Secondly, what happens to the stocks of these mid-sized banks like First Republic and its competitors? Do they stabilize? Does somebody come through to buy these one of these banks, which would probably be a good thing? Or does the problem get worse? And third, while all this is going on, there's a whole separate crisis in Europe about a big bank in Switzerland called Credit Suisse, which has been in trouble for years. But this has made it all worse, and that's coming to a head as well. And if that goes poorly, that could rattle markets and rattle bank investors all over the world. That was David Wessel. He's the director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution. David, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Francis Jacobson Early Childhood Center, where curiosity, compassion, and community build a foundation for lifelong learning. Located in the Longwood Medical Area, 10 minutes from Coolidge Corner, now accepting applications for children ages 20 months to 5 years. Open House Tuesday, March 21st, 7.30 p.m., fjecc.org. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update it in your app store now. WBUR supporters include Bernadine Sung Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. And Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Russian President Vladimir Putin paid a surprise visit to Crimea to mark the ninth anniversary of Russia's illegal annexation of the peninsula from Ukraine. This trip comes just a day after the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for Putin's arrest on war crime charges. In Ecuador, panicked people rushed into the streets after a strong magnitude 6.7 earthquake that the country's president says left at least 12 people dead and several others trapped under the rubble of collapsed homes and businesses. And scientists in Australia are blaming low oxygen levels for a mass die-off of fish in a remote part of New South Wales. And officials are warning oxygen levels could fall further this weekend amid a heat wave. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. This weekend, we're taking a look back at two of the defining legacies of George W. Bush's presidency. The war in Iraq that left tens of thousands of people dead and millions displaced, and a global public health initiative that saved millions of lives. We'll have more on the Iraq war in a moment, but first, the ambitious program that helped developing countries get HIV prevention and treatment. In his 2003 State of the Union address, Bush announced the launch of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. At the time, rates of HIV infections and deaths from AIDS were stabilized and falling in the U.S., but in sub-Saharan Africa, HIV infections had reached a deadly peak. That previous year, almost 3 million people died from AIDS, making it one of the worst years of Africa's HIV epidemic. I spoke with Dr. Helene Gale, the president of Spelman College. Dr. Gale has worked for over 20 years in international public health and humanitarian aid, focused on HIV prevention and treatment. As an epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other international health groups, she told me about meeting the first person in Africa to receive HIV treatment through the PEPFAR program. Just to hear from this person how this had just transformed their lives. And that that was at a time when HIV was a death sentence if you lived in Africa. This was somebody who really miraculously, if you will, was able to go back to living a life, being a productive family member, a breadwinner, member of the community. And that happened millions of times throughout the history of PEPFAR. But we also through PEPFAR, we're able to develop a public health and a, and treatment infrastructure that has been hugely important as we've tackled other global challenges like what we just went through with, with COVID. And so PEPFAR has such long-lasting, long-reaching impact. What is the scope of the problem now? And, and you know, what are sort of the major challenges that face PEPFAR and the fight against global HIV AIDS today? The biggest challenge is keeping people focused on why this is so critical, why it is so important, and why it's in our best interest to continue to make sure that we are generous and share our technologies with the rest of the world. So, you know, I I just think this is so critical to continue people having a commitment to this program that has been not only life-saving for millions of people, but has also had a huge economic benefit that in the long run, you know, makes us all safer, more secure when the whole globe, the rest of the world has good economic well-being. 
I wanted to ask you about one criticism of the program, which, you know, focuses on a period where the program focused on abstinence education. The money that was provided to other countries as aid was sort of bundled with a message of abstinence, which imposed a moral message on other countries that were getting aid from the program. I'm wondering what your thoughts are as you sort of reflect back to that time. It's obviously much better to prevent someone from getting HIV than to necessarily need to take treatments and, as you mentioned, treatments that are lifelong. That said, you know, we know that for a sexually transmitted disease, the way to absolutely prevent is for people to not have sexual interactions. But we know that that is a natural part of life and that having a message that is abstinence only without thinking about the other parts of how you can reduce your risk like condom use, like treating other sexually transmitted diseases, you know, is, is really not using all your tools in the toolkit. So uh, we understand that, you know, there are lots of conflicting feelings about people who may have multiple partners, have uh, risky sexual interactions. But at the end of the day, you know, this was about saving lives. And I think we had to use all the tools in the toolkit and not be confined to simply one. You know, over the past 20 years, the U.S. has spent more than $100 billion on responding to HIV and AIDS globally. And I know that it's made a huge dent in the problem, but I'm also wondering, like, how much more, I don't know if we can quantify it, but like how much more money will it take to sort of end the AIDS epidemic? And, you know, why is that a good investment for the U.S.? Well, you know, I'm not sure um, that I can talk about, you know, dollars and cents and how much more it would take. I guess the question is really, you know, what would happen if we didn't spend those resources? And I think returning to the days that before PEPFAR, allowing a pandemic to ravage populations, to rob generations of their future and their potential, is just not something that I think we as the United States can sit by and watch happen. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the infrastructure that was created to combat HIV AIDS through PEPFAR has been useful through the global pandemic of COVID. I mean, as other health threats emerge, do you do you think that PEPFAR should pivot to reach beyond HIV and AIDS? You know, PEPFAR was created for a particular purpose. And I think it has done a great job of extending that platform to make sure that as PEPFAR uh, as a program is developed, that it is thinking about what's the capacity that it's leaving behind? How can it serve more broadly? Uh, but I do think PEPFAR's focus on HIV and AIDS is important because um, we need to finish the job. It is still a, a major cause of mortality and morbidity in countries around the world. And I think until we finish that job, you know, it is important to have that single-minded focus, all the while understanding that we're developing infrastructure that will uh, ultimately serve beyond just HIV and AIDS. That was Dr. Helene Gale speaking with us about the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. To hear an interview with the current head of the PEPFAR program, listen to the Consider This podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts and at npr.org. It's also been almost 20 years since then-President George W. Bush addressed Americans as the nation veered towards war. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance 
to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. The U.S. invaded Iraq on the shoddy pretext that the nation was preparing weapons of mass destruction. It marked the start of a seven-year conflict that destabilized the Middle East and undermined the credibility of U.S. officials at home. To mark the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we've invited Noreen Malone. Back in 2021, she hosted season five of Slate's Slow Burn podcast. The podcast covered the various bad actors, from shoddy sources to politicians to the media, that led the U.S. to war. Noreen Malone, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So you start the series with a look at a man named Ahmed Chalabi. He's an Iraqi politician who gave the U.S. bad information that propped up the case for war. Tell us about Chalabi and why the U.S. government kept going back to him. Chalabi was this really charming man who was telling people a story that was compelling, which was this story of a country that had once been great, that had been ruined by Saddam Hussein, the brutal dictator who was then in charge of the country. And the U.S. kept going back to him because he had information for them. He was in touch with a number of Iraqi exiles. He was in touch with defectors. So in the 1990s, the CIA had discredited him. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, a group of people called the neocons had become very interested in what Chalabi wanted to happen. They shared goals with Chalabi. Um, the intelligence community that had sort of uh, discredited him was not exactly talking to the community of intellectuals and government officials who were championing him. Take us back a little bit more to that time and what those shared goals were. I mean, why were there so many politicians at the time, starting from the top with President George W. Bush and Dick Cheney? Why were they so eager to sort of take Chalabita's word? And why are they so eager to invade Iraq? On a basic level, many of these people had been involved in the administration of George H.W. Bush. Obviously, during his administration, the first Gulf War had happened. And many of those people saw it as unfinished business. The Americans had not actually gone to Baghdad. They had not taken out Saddam Hussein during 1991. And now they had another chance to do what they saw as rescuing the Iraqi people, as bringing democracy to the region. Um, and I should say that it wasn't just people on the right who supported this. There were a lot of people who were liberal humanitarian interventionists, people at places like the New Republic or Slate, which is where you know we put together this podcast. Um, at that time, a lot of people at those magazines, at those publications also supported the Iraq war because they saw the potential for a humanitarian disaster. Journalists played a huge role in the spread of misinformation um, that led to the invasion of Iraq. And you focused on Judith Miller, a New York Times reporter who served a jail sentence rather than give up sources that gave her bad information. So I'm wondering, from your perspective as someone who's looked into this, how did journalists from some of the nation's top institutions get it so wrong? Yeah, Judith Miller has really become the poster girl for journalistic malpractice during the lead up to the Iraq war, but she certainly wasn't alone. And she wasn't the only person who was printing some of these kinds of stories. I should just say at the outset that there were people who got it right. There were people who questioned the narrative that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, but the people who did get it wrong, I think it's an interesting lesson for journalists. Those were people who had really high up sources, right? They had people at the very top of the administration telling them things. And as a journalist, when you hear from those people, you think that's a great source. I got a couple of people from the administration. I, I can trust that. But one lesson that I think we all have learned from that is that you have to really examine the motivations of those people 
and that the people at the top of, of an organization don't always actually have the best information. In the podcast, you talk about how the government was feeding misinformation to the media and then turning that around and using it as proof for their own agenda. So do you think that the media today is less gullible than it was then? Like what, what have you seen as changes in the media that might safeguard against this kind of thing in the future? You're sort of referring to the snake eating its own tail phenomenon where there would be a leak to, let's say, a, a reporter at a big newspaper, and then an administration official would cite that reporter who was citing administration sources. It was really quite a thing. Um, I think there are competing forces happening there. One, the media is not in many ways in as strong of a situation financially as it was 20 years ago. There are uh, fewer places with the kind of resources to do investigative reporting and international on the ground combat coverage. So that might be a problem. On the other hand, I do think one of the legacies of the Trump years and and to a certain extent the Bush years is that the media is less trusting of the people in power in our government and a little bit more oppositional. Again, the atmosphere after 9-11 can't be discounted. Uh, People who might have previously been much more combative were reeling from what had happened. And there was a sense that it was somehow unpatriotic to be too aggressive in reporting. I don't think any reporters would exactly say that, but that really, if you look at what happened, the shadow of 9-11 was cast over that. So I do think one of the legacies of the Trump years is that the media is more oppositional to people in power. Yeah, so the shadow of 9-11 was really instrumental to the run-up to the Iraq War. And and I wonder, I want to ask you about the shadow that you think the Iraq War has cast. It's going to be 20 years on Monday since the U.S. invaded Iraq. And what do you see as the legacy of the war, both for the people in the region and for, you know, Americans and the veterans that fought in it? Well, I'll start with the people in the region. Um, they saw it as a blight on their country, that, that things had really been even worse than they were under Saddam, um, which is pretty bad. After George W. Bush declared mission accomplished in May 2003, there was an insurgency that led to a civil war. The Iraqi government continues to be plagued by corruption. In the power vacuum that the civil war left, ISIS stepped into the region. The country is still grappling with that. And then, you know, in America, too, the veterans who served in Iraq, the U.S. government has estimated more than three and a half million of them were exposed to toxic smoke from pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. Studies show that as many as a third of service members who served after 9-11 have been diagnosed with mental illness. And in fact, PTSD is more common among Iraq war veterans. So there's a real toll for people who served. Noreen Malone is currently an enterprise editor at the New York Times Style Desk. Previously, she hosted season five of Slate's Slow Burn podcast titled The Road to the Iraq War. Noreen Malone, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to NPR News. How you feel about this latest and possibly last season of Ted Lasso probably depends on how you feel about the characters in Ted Lasso. That's because star, co-creator, and executive producer Jason Sudeikis and his fellow producers spend a lot of time this season savoring the quirky, familial vibe of the show's signature personalities. Like this moment, featuring Rebecca Welton, 
the woman who owns the British soccer team that Ted Lasso manages, played by Hannah Waddingham. Rebecca can't hide that she really wants to beat a rival team beloved by sports media called West Ham United, owned by her ex-husband, Rupert. The worst part is that they've picked Rupert to finish in the top four. Rupert's going to play this year? What? No. Oh, so you mean West Ham. Precisely. Everyone thinks he's better than us. They. Everyone thinks they are better than us. Yes, that's what I said, they. So, what's the plan? How are we going to beat him? Them. Exactly. Fans of the show know that Sudeikis' Ted Lasso faces a rivalry with a former assistant, unctuous strategist Nate Shelley, who left Ted's team for a job as head coach at West Ham. Nate is becoming a terror at West Ham, berating a reporter during a press conference. You are now the manager of a contending Premier League team, but just two years ago, you were a mere kit man washing another team's underwear. I mean, it must all feel a bit overwhelming for you. What's overwhelming is the confusion I feel when someone so intelligent looking asks such a stupid question. But when asked to respond to public insults from Nate aggressively, Ted decides to crack jokes pointed at himself. Well, I'm so dumb that the first time I heard y'all talking about Yorkshire pudding, I thought it was a fancy word y'all had for dog poop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm so dumb. How, how dumb it is. Yeah, right, well, you know. Well, whenever I text someone over here about money, I still spell pounds LBS. <laughs> Those who've been watching the show a while know these self-deprecating quips hide a deeper pain likely connected to Ted's own questions about whether he should stay in Britain to win a major championship as his ex-wife and son seemingly move on without him in America. Regret is a common theme this season as various characters considered choices made and roads not taken. Even Brett Goldstein's gruff soccer star turned coach Roy Kent wonders to Ted if he retired too early. I don't want to be one of them broken down footballers just taking up space until they're dropped years after they should have been. Yeah, well, a lot of folks think it's better to quit than be fired, you know? There's a part of me maybe I should have stayed. Just enjoyed myself. But that is not who I am. I guess. Not yet. Yeah, that line has a double meaning. But I can't explain without dropping a major spoiler. So just trust that this admission means a lot. For those who hate character development presented that obviously, this season may be a tough slog. Characters here often do what real people rarely do, bearing their inner feelings through perceptive monologues. Despite Sudeikis' statements that this season wraps up the story he wanted to tell, Apple TV Plus hasn't said for sure if Ted Lasso will end here. And it's tough to know if these moments will add up to a truly great series conclusion if it does. But it's a measure of Ted Lasso's quality that even if they don't, will still be left with some pretty compelling television. I'm Eric Deggins. NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, the dark history of the tech industry. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
Start your Sunday with Weekend Edition on 90.9 WBUR. It's been 20 years since the U.S. invasion of Iraq, what's changed in two decades, and what hasn't. Listen again tomorrow when you wake up. 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, rewarding community heroes during their first responder days, now through March 22nd. For details, visit OceanStateJobLot.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The commander of Ukraine's ground forces says the battle for Bakhmut is far from over and the Russians are failing to break through Ukrainians' lines in the east. Ukraine's military says Russia is retreating from the city. An agreement has been reached to continue to allow Ukrainian grain to be exported from Black Sea ports to help deal with a global food crisis after the Russian invasion. The deal was set to expire today. And former President Donald Trump is claiming without evidence that he will be arrested next week in a case being brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office over hush money payments to women who alleged sexual encounters with him. He's also calling on his supporters to protest. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. This week, lawmakers in Mexico said they would launch a federal commission to look into potential human rights abuses by the country's military. Specifically, they want to look into whether the government and military were using cell phone-based spyware to spy on human rights activists and journalists. This inquiry was set off by a report from two digital rights groups, R3D, based in Mexico, and Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. These groups work to protect privacy and human rights in the digital space. Dina Temple-Raston is host of Click Here, that's a podcast that focuses on cybersecurity and intelligence. She's also a former NPR correspondent who's covered these topics, and she was part of a group of journalists who got an early look at the report, and she's with us now. Welcome, Dina. Thank you. So, Dina, let's start with the powerful spyware that's at the heart of the story. It's called Pegasus. Remind us what exactly it is and how does it work? It's something called zero-click malware, so you don't have to open anything or click anything. Instead, what it does is it targets vulnerabilities in your phone's operating system. And then once it's infected your phone, it basically has carte blanche. It can read your texts, it can hear your calls, it can even take over your camera. So it essentially becomes like a spy in your pocket. And it's made by an Israeli company called NSO Group. Back in November, the Biden administration blacklisted the company, saying it knowingly supplied spyware that had been used by foreign governments to maliciously target the phones of dissidents, human rights activists, and journalists. 
And this latest news from Mexico in which a human rights activist named Raimundo Ramos was targeted, that's just the latest iteration of all of this. So Raimundo Ramos, tell us a little bit about him and why they put Pegasus on his phone. So he's a local human rights activist, and he was investigating a 2020 shooting in the border town of Nuevo Laredo. That's right across from the Rio Grande from Laredo, Texas. And the shooting happened at the hands of the army. And after it happened, the army came out and claimed it shot and killed a dozen cartel members. And then this video comes out. It's a kind of body cam video that was leaked. And it seemed to fly directly in the face of what the military said happened. And in this video, no one is shooting back at the military. People appear to have their hands bound behind their backs. And it had all the hallmarks of an extrajudicial killing. And right around that time that the video was released, it turns out that Romus's phone was infected with Pegasus spyware. And he knows this because Citizen Lab, this digital rights group at the University of Toronto, ran these diagnostics on his phone and they found all the hallmarks of Pegasus there. Okay, so then Citizen Lab worked with a local digital rights group to dig into this more. And what did they find? Well, the local digital rights group is called R3D. And they've been publishing reports on spyware in Mexico for years. And they'd had a lot of circumstantial evidence that spyware was being used there, but they didn't have a smoking gun. And you know, as you know, journalists love paper because it's a contemporaneous evidence that something has happened. And R3D got some leaked documents that included contracts, communications, and emails that made incredibly clear that not only was the army using Pegasus, but they were specifically using it against Ramos and anybody else who was looking into that controversial 2020 shooting. We have some tape from Luis Fernando Garcia, who's the executive director of R3D, and he talks about what they found. We have the number of the contract, the date of the contract, the amounts paid for the contract. So that solidify our belief that the army was not only spying on human rights defenders, on journalists, but they were actively trying to hide the information related uh, to this and lying to different authorities. You know, they even found some evidence of a secret military unit called CMI. And it was in charge of using these high-tech spying techniques to vacuum up communications. The CMI memo that they found even had a logo, the names of officers who were part of it. And in the document, that the thing that they were most worried about when it came to CMI was anybody finding out that that agency existed. Before we let you go, Dina, I know that you've been spending a lot of time reporting this story, thinking about it. What are some of the consequences of the Mexican government spying on its citizens? Like, are there broader implications to the story? Yes, there are. I mean, the context here is really important. The army in Mexico isn't just about national defense. It controls the ports, it builds roads and airports, it owns banks. When you have this kind of concentrated power, there needs to be some sort of accountability. And R3D, that digital rights group based in Mexico, confirmed that this was not legally sanctioned surveillance that they discovered. And the broader point is that it isn't just Mexico. The spyware industry is global now. And we've done lots of stories about this, about authoritarians who can now target distance halfway across the world with Pegasus, and they don't have to physically send anyone, which is quite expensive. All they have to do is buy a license from Pegasus and target a phone. And we're clearly seeing that it's not just dissidents and activists. U.S. State Department employees have been targeted. People who happen to be in the orbit of someone somebody wants to target have been in the crosshairs of this. And John Scott Railton, the researcher from Citizen Lab we heard from before, he talked a little bit about this. It's not just the highest profile people. 
that were targeted with Pegasus. It's their friends, their lovers, their softball coach. People around them who might have access to them were targeted as well. And history has shown that spyware goes far beyond distance and activists. Anybody, anybody at all could be targeted. That was Dina Temple-Raston of Click Here. That's a podcast that focuses on cybersecurity and intelligence issues. Dina Temple-Raston, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. You're welcome. In the new movie, A Good Person, we meet Allison, played by Florence Pugh. She's a young woman about to get married and start her life. And then, in an instant, that changes when a car that she's driving is in a fatal accident. Allison walks away alive, but her passengers in the car, including the woman who would have been her sister-in-law, die in the crash. When we see Allison again a year later, she's a different person. She's depressed, addicted to pain medication, and living at home with her mother. Hey, Mama, can you tell me where my pills are? Which ones? We said we were going to wean off of them, remember? Did we? Yes. Because we are in pain and we need more. They're not going to give you more, Allie. But a run-in with Daniel, who would have been Allison's father-in-law had her life gone as planned, starts an unexpected friendship and forces Allison to face the past. Daniel is played by Morgan Freeman. It's a story about grief and forgiveness with moments of dark humor sprinkled in. Zach Braff, best known for his role in Scrubs and the movie Garden State, wrote and directed the film, and he joins us now. Welcome, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, to start us off, I think it's fair to say that you're known for comedy, and there are some really funny moments in the film, but this movie is primarily about some really heavy stuff. And I'm wondering, what led you to write this movie? Um, It's really... um came out of my own grief and loss. In 2016, my my sister had an aneurysm Mm. and she survived for about two years after that as a fraction of her incredible personality. Mm. And then she passed and my father didn't last much longer after her passing. And then I went into lockdown and one of my best friends who was staying with me with his wife and young child got COVID and ended up dying from COVID at 41 years old. So all of this was happening around me. And in lockdown, when I sat down to finally express myself and and write something, this is what came out. I I wanted to write something authentic about this pain, uh, this anguish that we human beings sometimes experience and how we stand back up after that. For me, when I was watching the movie, it felt like one of the big themes is about forgiveness, you know, forgiving someone else, but also forgiving yourself. And I wonder if if you see it that way, too. And what made you want to sort of explore that theme? I think one of the things I wanted to explore was the the idea that taking responsibility and really being 1000% honest with ourselves is a first major step before we can move forward. And that's a real struggle for Allison in in this situation, because one of the things that's kept her sane, if you can call it that, is being in denial about the truth of of what happened. Mm -hmm. Daniel is in the AA program, and he believes in in service and wanting to help her. But he, too, is is just holding down such resentment and rage towards her. But he, he holds it down as long as he can until she gives him reason 
not to be able to hold it anymore. I mean, that also speaks to the theme of accountability, which I think was another major theme in the film. And I wanted to play a clip from a scene here. To set the stage, Allison has gone to a party with Daniel's granddaughter, and things get a little out of hand, and it leads to a major confrontation between Allison and Daniel, played by Morgan Freeman. You drank. You turned your map out back on at 1736-22. Impact was at 1736-24. Skid marks show you lost 30 feet before you swerved. You didn't have time to stop. Because you were looking at your phone, Allison. Stop blaming Alvarez. They're dead because of you. I found that scene to be really powerful. And while what Daniel is saying is really hard to hear, it's also true. And, you know, throughout the film, Allison really struggles to admit to her role in the accident. So can you talk a little bit more about why it was important for Allison to really face that? She's not doing anything egregious. She's she's using her Maps app. It's not like she's texting her on social media. I wanted the audience to see themselves in it and see how they too might wrestle with taking responsibility. Because the idea that it's truly her fault is something that she is in denial about. And um, it, it takes a, a very long journey and sobriety for her to get clarity on something that she's incapable of being honest with herself about. And why was that an important step for her? I guess, you know, in, in terms of taking accountability, why was that really like, like in your view of things, is that kind of what it takes to kind of really start to heal and move on? Yeah, I, I believe that. I think that she gets clear on something that she's been in complete denial about and seeing her own responsibility. And only from then can she move forward. You kind of have to, I believe you kind of have to go to zero and start with a clean slate of pure, unadulterated honesty, and then you can build back up. And and I guess that's what I was infusing into the screenplay. I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, you know, but I wanted to sort of say or, or ask you, where have you landed on what is your definition of a good person? I don't want to, I, I feel silly answering that because first <laughs> of all, it's who am I to say? And B, I hope that people see the movie and it inspires a conversation about why that's the title and and um, they're all good people in this story. These, this is about a story about good people who have fallen down. And they're not perfect, as no one is. But it's a story about them trying to stand back up again. That was writer and director Zach Braff. His new film is A Good Person. And you can see it in theaters starting March 24th. Zach, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's mid-March, and that means it's March Madness. Both the men's and women's NCAA basketball tournaments are in full swing. On the men's side, we've already seen some incredible surprise wins. And on the women's side, top-seeded teams are dominating. For the latest, we're now joined by NPR's Tom Goldman in Sacramento. Hello, Tom. Hi, Ping. So, Tom, let's start with the men's tournament. Um, there was a game today that caught a lot of people's attention. It was Furman against San Diego State. Tell us about that game. Well, yeah, th there was a lot of attention because of what Furman had done in the first round. It, it really pulled off the first big upset of the men's tournament, beat number four seed uh, Virginia. But sadly for Furman fans, Furman turned back into a pumpkin today <laughs> against San Diego State. Uh, the Aztecs were just too good. They dominated. They won by 23 points, a great defensive team. And 
you know, this is what often happens after those head-turning upsets in the first round. The underdog wins, but then moves on to play another good team. And a lot of times the underdog isn't good enough to win more than that first big game. And that's why they came into the tournament as an underdog. If you could just help us define what an upset is and how does this year compare with other recent years in terms of upsets? So there are 16 teams in each of the four regions of the tournament, and they're seeded by how good they are, number one through number 16. So I very subjectively consider a big first-round upset as a win by a 13 seed down to a number 16 seed. This year's first round, which was played Thursday and Friday, there were three big upsets, but they included the rarest kind. Fairly Dickinson's win yesterday over Purdue, a 16 over a one. That was a second time that's happened in the men's tournament history ever. There was also a 15 over a two, Princeton over Arizona, which means another bona fide title contender, Arizona, is out. So based on those dramatic results, I'm going to say this will be one of the more memorable tournaments uh, first rounds. So, Tom, you're in Sacramento for the first two rounds. So tell us about what you've seen and uh, what do you think is standing out to you? Well, I did see that Princeton win over Arizona. And, you know, it's really interesting to be courtside. You can see the players' expressions, how their eyes look. And as as Princeton pulled even and then ahead, I could see hesitancy and frustration and doubt in the Arizona players' eyes. You have to remember, some of these guys are huge grown men physically, but they are 18 to 22-year-olds, still very young, Mm -hmm. still susceptible to pressure. Now, as the game went down, the Arizona players just looked and played like they were carrying a big burden with their number two seed, the expectation that they'd win. Okay, and then over to the women's tournament. Um, How is that going so far? What kind of drama are we seeing? Not a lot of upsets, and the the bests are dominating. Generally, there aren't as many shockers in the women's tournament. There isn't the same depth as the men's game at this point. So you have some dominant teams, but not a lot of others that can challenge them. Hence, we see overall number one seed and defending champion South Carolina beating its first-round opponent yesterday, Norfolk State by 32, or number two, Iowa beating Southeast Louisiana by 52. Um, I I think as the women's tournament goes on, we'll see more thrillers. But right now, South Carolina is the best. The other three number one seeds, Virginia Tech, Stanford, and Indiana today, all won their first round games easily by an average of nearly 33 points. That's NPR's Tom Goldman in Sacramento. Tom, thank you.